shit givers. This is Quinn Emmett, and I am very excited uh, to come at you today uh, uh, with an awesome show um, from the fine folks at PBS. God, I love PBS. This show is called Nova Now. I'm a longtime huge fan of everything they do, the science behind the headlines. And uh, this episode, you know, when we uh, talked, I thought, boy, I would, I would just love to get this in front of our community. It's near and dear to, to me and the moment we're in. It is about the drought. It's about adaptation and mitigation. Folks, as the Western U.S. faces increasingly uh, dry conditions, this show uh, takes a look at the technologies and the practices being developed and implemented to cope with uh, the drought, especially in vulnerable communities. We know that 93% of the land in uh, at least seven Western states is increasingly affected by drought. We're transitioning into this thing called desertification. We've talked about it before. You ask about it all the time. Um, I've had some great conversations with folks about it. But look, we all know uh, if it's not quite evident yet everywhere, these increasingly dry conditions have widespread consequences. Uh, it's affecting everything from uh, our water quality to agriculture, uh, our national food supply. So with the help of hydrologists on the ground and in the lab, uh, Dr. Alec Patel digs deep. He learns about the traditional ecological knowledge of the Navajo Nation in the especially hard-hit Southwest. He talks with uh, truly incredible innovators applying advanced tech to agricultural practices uh, like drone surveillance. Um, or AI, uh, all these different things to acknowledge the moment we're in and to deal with it as it is. Um, so there's some very cool stuff in here. Uh, these practices are going to be an instrumental part of the West's coming decades. So uh, whether you live out here or not, uh, these will affect you. Um, so listen, please give it a listen. Enjoy it. Uh, it is from the show Nova Now. You can check out their episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. And of course, uh, hit that subscribe button to get all new conversations from me, from us at Important Not Important really soon. Have a great day. I'm walking into the farmer's market at the Ferry Building in San Francisco on this lovely Saturday morning. We're gonna to talk to some farmers about drought, how it's affecting them and what the public needs to know. You know, we're all under rationing now and it's only July. Uh, the creek is really, really low. This year has been the hardest year in the past decade and we have only yielded around 20% of our crops. Well, it's just the sheer quantity of water that it takes to grow stone fruit, it takes to grow apples, it takes to grow almonds, and I think the quantity is just something that, you know, the normal, you know, city dweller has no concept of. A lot of uh, customers have seen an increase in prices. They don't really understand that our whole life in farm relies on the weather, and when there's no rain, then we have less product and just to barely stay afloat. I'm definitely fearful for the future of farming. So you've just heard farmers Annabelle, Emily, Molly, and Adam talk about how they're struggling in these dry times. 
But it's not just the Bay Area, it's all through the western half of the U.S. Almost all of Arizona is dealing with drought, with more than half of the state facing exceptional drought conditions. The largest reservoir in the United States is running on empty. Lake Mead, behind iconic Hoover Dam, is at its lowest level in nearly 90 years. That means water shortages, higher fire risk. Farmers in parts of New Mexico say they are being asked not to water their crops. 100% of California is now in a drought, and if you could believe it, it could get even worse. It's hot and dry, and much of the western U.S. is experiencing a historic mega drought. Now, there's a couple questions we got to ask, like... How are scientific innovations helping us adapt to and prepare for droughts like this one, particularly their effects on our food supply? Also, who's especially vulnerable? And how does all this affect those of us who don't live in drought-prone areas? Because guess what? It does. This is Nova Now, where we use science to quench your curiosity as we explore all these headlines. I'm Alok Patel. My time at the farmer's market helped me see even more starkly how this mega drought can affect our food security. So even if there's no drought where you live, it impacts all of us. And in this world of smartphones, smart assistance, and GPS navigation, can smart tech save our food from drought? And farmers aren't the only ones thinking about this issue. Some really concerned and tech-savvy teens are rolling up their sleeves too. So I live in uh, the Central Valley in California. When we're hit with a drought and being an agricultural focused area, it, it really affects us like, yeah. My name is John Estrada. I'm 16 years old. My name is Arya Chan. I'm 18 years old. Arya lives in New Jersey. I go to India every year because my grandparents and a lot of my family live there. And um, when you're driving through there, there's massive fields that they have problems with feeding everybody. When you see that these fields that you know have all the potential to solve these problems are just sitting with wilted plants, but their lack of really advancements in their irrigation has prevented them from being able to efficiently use their water and therefore keep reserves of their water. So John and Arya are budding scientists. They won top awards in this year's Regeneron International Science and Engineering Fair with a set of impressive projects to address farming's drought issues. Here's John again. One of the biggest issues in farming is, it's almost guesswork, when to water your plants. It's like, you could try to water your plants based on how you think your plants are doing. The problem with that is once you start seeing the telltale signs of drought stress in plants, it's already too late, your yield is affected. So what I'm hoping to solve is to prevent overwatering in plants, but to also prevent a loss in crop yield. John's project improves on existing tools to track plant thirst with a special camera and a new measurement model. Essentially what my project does is uses pixel by pixel uh, measurements from the canopy temperatures of the plants, and then it uses red, green, and blue light wavelengths and as well as soil moisture data. And these are used to create an artificial intelligence model that will predict drought stress. This model is one he developed, the AI drought assessment model. That's AI as in artificial intelligence, which is computer simulating human thinking, but faster and more accurately. And John just calls it ADA for short, it's easier. 
and he found that his ADA model is just as accurate as the current standard at measuring drought stress, the crop water stress index. But because John's approach uses more direct indicators from the plant, it can alert you to drought stress more quickly. So you can adjust your irrigation even earlier. Also, to take his measurements, John built a robotic arm. Kind of cool. The robotic arm was used so that every time I took a picture, it would be at the same exact spot, the same exact uh, distance from the plant, so that my measurements were completely accurate. There was no margin for error. So the more accurate your measurements are of drought stress, the better you can assess how thirsty the plants are, and the less water you waste. Arya developed his own approach to address this same problem in developing countries where technological and financial resources are more limited. Instead of the farmer having to um, make their own adjustments and use their intuition to figure out how much water they think each plant should be given, um, really computers should be deciding that. So he'd have a drone fly around taking measures of crop health and then send that over to a computer to analyze, which then tells farmers how to customize their water use. There's a term for the kind of innovations John and Arya are working on, precision agriculture. That means applying advanced technologies to target your farming practices more effectively, like drone surveillance or artificial intelligence. Yeah, that's what the kids are into these days. When I was in high school, my science project was swabbing random parts of the school to see how much bacteria I could grow. But to be fair, I didn't have the robots and drones to play with, so it's a little different. Now imagine just what kind of precision agriculture you could come up with if you had a supercomputer. Which brings us to our next guest. Hello everybody, my name is Kai Yuguan. I'm a Blue Waters Associate Professor at University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I read that your grandfather wanted you to be an astronaut. That's true, that's a, that's a true story. So my Chinese name is Kai Yu, and literally that means to develop the universe. Um, and then my grandpa really hoped, you know, he gave me that name because he wanted me to be an astronaut. I was uh, always very grateful and it's inspiring. Well, Guan is not an astronaut. He's an eco-hydrologist studying how plant growth interacts with the environment. He does his research in the so-called Corn Belt of the Midwest. And it's a fitting name because one third of the world's corn and soybean is produced there. So he might not be working in space, but he's teamed up with the folks who do. I'm working with NASA and I got a lot of uh, honors and awards from NASA focusing on our planet. He's one of the very select few who gets to use Blue Waters for his research. That's the name of one of the biggest supercomputers ever built at any U.S. university. Why do I need to use a supercomputer to address the crop problem? We actually use a satellite remote sensing data that you collected from the space, a lot of them from by NASA or European Space Agency. The remote sensing data he's talking about are from super high resolution images showing detailed information about farmlands. Millions of gigabytes of data from multiple satellites that have been looking down at Earth and recording the conditions of crops combined with data collected on the ground. It's a gigantic data set, one you need a supercomputer for. We also use models to do simulations at individual farm level. And then in Champaign County, which is where I located at this moment, there are tens of thousands of fields just in one county. Multiply this by thousands of counties in the nation in the corn belt. Uh, and then so it's a, a millions of fields that are required to be calculated. So this is precision ag on steroids. 
how does crunching all this data work to help farmers? Well, you could analyze a field. Then you'd come up with a targeted prescription for your field under different conditions for exactly how much, say, fertilizer to use and when and where to apply it. That'd save you money, but also protect the environment by reducing greenhouse gas emissions from fertilizers. So all this gonna help farmers at the field scale. We enable that precision practice on the ground. Guan's team is now testing better ways to irrigate based on a finer understanding of the way drought affects plants. You know, traditional way of defining drought is based on the amount of rainfall uh, and then the amount of the soil moisture in the, on the ground. But there is uh, also a very important component that uh, um, sometimes has been understudied and overlooked. If uh, the atmosphere become very dry, when the atmosphere is dry, it sucks water out of the plant and the plant needs more water. But plants have a clever way of regulating themselves through tiny pores on their leaves called stomata. And then so plant has the ability to adjust. If the atmosphere is very dry, then stomata is smart enough, they tend to close their stomata. And by doing so, plant reduce the water use. But that has a side effect because the stomata is also where plant get CO2 in to grow for photosynthesis. Getting less CO2 means less photosynthesis, which is how plants make the food they need to grow. That impact seems to be more directly related to the loss of the yield. And that's one more way climate change is bad news, because the hotter it is, the drier the atmosphere, causing more stressed out plants. The good news is, this new understanding of drought allows Guan's team to develop even more precise approaches to managing crops' water needs. Now, this may sound counterintuitive, but Guan's research has found that sometimes, even when atmospheric dryness is high, soil moisture can still be relatively normal. In those situations, the traditional irrigation solution may not ask you to irrigate because they only measure things based on the soil moisture uh, threshold. But with atmospheric dryness, plants are gonna actually respond um, by using more water. We suggest that to put more water into the system in those cases. And then the similar condition is that when soil moisture is actually relatively low, but the atmosphere is not very dry. The plants then won't be so thirsty. And then in those cases, the irrigation amount can be actually reduced than before. So by factoring in the atmospheric dryness along with soil moisture, we can design smarter irrigation systems. You can actually save water by 10% or even further um, without sacrificing your crop yield. This could be a, a smarter way to both reduce water use, but also help you know, crop uh, fight drought. This all makes sense, but as you can imagine, precision agriculture technology isn't something you can just go walk into a shop and buy like another piece of machinery. So scientists like Guan are working with farmers groups to make this tech more widely available. To what extent is this already happening in farms right now? Like, so what extent are all the technologies we're talking about being employed? If you think about irrigation, just uh, mm -hmm. for, as an example, um, probably only 5% farmers uh, uh, have a sensor on the ground. Uh, and then, you know, probably only about 20 to 30% of the farmers have some, you know, guidance from, you know, some irrigation companies or in, in the equipment companies. Majority of the farmers still 
depend on uh, the weather forecast or their neighbor suggestion or their neighbor's action to make their decision. So in other words, that there is a wide space for improvement. So even though the so-called ag tech development is kind of booming right now, farmers' adoption of the precision ag technology is still pretty low. And in Brazil, in, in, in other Asian countries or in Africa, like the adoption rate about the, any precision ag tools are extremely low at this moment. Guan thinks governments could help by offering incentives for adopting these methods. But he thinks the technology itself isn't quite ready for prime time. So I challenged Guan to envision this tool. I believe seeing is believing. You know, just imagine that if we have an app in your, in your iPhone that if you open the app, you can instantly see a field that you are working on. Uh, you are able to see that field and you're able to look at the past his- history of that field in the past multiple years. And then also provide a few simple information, but easy to consume type of information. Like at this moment, what's your crop stress condition? And how much is because of the amount of water in the soil? How much is because of the dryness condition in the atmosphere? You want to first build a trust. Like they, they know that they are not looking at like something made up, illusion, right? Guan says if he had a magic wand, he'd give all farmers a special piece of tech. It would show them the unintended consequences of all their past actions on a loss of yield and harm to the environment. Then it would give them customized tools to do better. See, our landscape is changing towards a, a more you know, smarter and, and a more sustainable way of managing the landscape. I think uh, that's going to be the ultimate goal for me and, and for a lot of my colleagues. Making technology for coping with drought accessible to those who need it is one thing. But there are communities who are especially vulnerable to drought, and they're doing their best to use the tools they have. Indigenous people throughout the world are uh, more susceptible to climate change impacts. When we come back, we'll hear from a water management expert from the Navajo Nation. There are over 570 tribal nations in the United States, and not all Native Americans have the same language, the culture, and tradition. And for the Navajos, um, we... We don't dance for rain, but we do pray for rain. Crystal Tuli Cordova is based in Rock Springs, New Mexico, and she's a principal hydrologist with the Navajo Nation Department of Water Resources in the Water Management Branch. And when we think about indigenous people, there's a strong spirituality component that is a part of our identity. She'e Crystal Tuli Cordova, Yanishia. That's her introducing herself in the traditional way of the Navajo people, also known as Diné. I am of the Bitter Water clan, born for the Tango people clan. My maternal grandfather's clan is the yucca fruit strung on a line. And my paternal grandfather's clan is the water that flows together. First of all, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. You literally originate from a water clan and you went on to become 
a, a water researcher in, in hydrology. What's the significance of water for the Navajo Nation? In Diné philosophy, there's a phrase, simply put in English, it is water is life. But when you think about the literal translation, uh, meaning water is our vitality, it provides our livelihood. So it's everything from providing the medicinal plants that we need, providing nourishment for our bodies, and a large portion of our bodies are made up of water. The Navajo Nation is located in the southwestern part of the United States. It's in the Four Corners region within the area of Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. And it's the tribe with both the largest land area and largest population in the United States. You know, I'm, I'm in California and we're also facing, you know, kind of a scary drought season. What image comes to your mind when, when I say the word drought? The landscape. So being able to see how continuous drought over the past 20 plus years has impacted the Navajo Nation. Um, evidence of this are definitely the wildlife migration impacts to water haulers as well as public water systems. Water haulers are people who don't have pipe water in their homes. So they need to go to a water point to collect their water in containers to use for everyday tasks like hygiene, cooking, drinking, or taking care of pets or livestock. It's important to have a water point in your community because if you don't, then um, you then rely on unregulated water sources. And the Navajo Nation has had um, legacy mining issues that have impacted water. And so it's important that people have quality water that they know won't be harmful to their health because there are unregulated waters throughout the Navajo Nation that have high uranium and high arsenic. As we've already heard, lacking water can really impact the food supply, which is already precarious for the Navajo. The Navajo Nation is also a food desert in addition to being like a high mountain desert. We only have 13 grocery stores for an area similar in size to West Virginia. And when you think about that, it's pretty astonishing. Um, so therefore, you know, many of us have a desire to grow our own food and produce and be able to can and dry food uh, so that we can prepare and make it through the winter. Although a lot of the Navajo Nation land is arid, they traditionally have grown their own crops. The three sister crops that we continue to grow, and those are corn, beans, and squash. Uh, the corn is a part of our ceremonies as well. The pollen from the corn are used for prayers, but also the corn itself is are not only used for consumption, but also used for things like an earthen cake during a puberty ceremony when a Navajo woman goes from a transition of a girl to a woman. Tuli Cordova wants to make sure we value traditional knowledge as well. For Indigenous people, we've been here a long time, and we don't need science to be able to tell us that things are changing. Even throughout my own time, I've noticed that change with regards to drought to where natural lakes that we used to see on the top of the Chiska Mountain, some of the higher elevation areas in the Navajo Nation, those lakes are no longer there. They're more just natural depressions without holding any water at all. To better understand drought, we need to understand the water cycles first. Now, Earth's water is in constant flux, connecting the ocean, land, and atmosphere. Now, visualize this. 
Water on the Earth evaporates, rises into the atmosphere, cools, and condenses into rain or snow in clouds. Then it falls again to the surface as precipitation and collects in the ground, rivers, lakes, streams, and the oceans. In the Navajo Nation, we do have some perennial streams. We have ephemeral streams. Perennial means a stream that runs year-round. An ephemeral is a stream that runs only after precipitation. We have precipitation two times a year, in the summertime as well as the winter. The summer precipitation also goes by a jazzier name, the North American monsoon. We're looking forward to the monsoon in the Navajo Nation. It's pretty hot and dry, so it's important to have that understanding that all water is connected. Uh, evapotranspiration contributes to precipitation, which can contribute to the flows and ephemeral and perennial streams while also helping recharge groundwater. With less precipitation, stream flows decline and the levels of water in lakes and reservoirs decrease. And when dry weather goes on and water supplies are not refilled, an area enters what we know as drought. Actually, there are different types of drought. If you ever look up something called a U.S. Drought Monitor, you can see that there's different magnitudes of drought. There's also different lengths of drought. The U.S. Drought Monitor is a map that shows parts of the country that are in drought. You've probably seen this map being shown on the news. It's that map with yellow, orange, and red blobs. And it uses five classifications. Abnormally dry, showing areas that may be going into or coming out of drought. And four levels of drought itself moderate, severe, extreme, and exceptional. You can check it for free at droughtmonitor.unl.edu and it updates every Thursday. According to the Drought Monitor, 96% of the Navajo Nation is experiencing extreme to exceptional drought. That's basically as bad as it gets. So bone dry, that's also bad when we think about fuel for wildfires. The Navajo Nation Department of Emergency Management has coordinated their community's response to drought since 1988. They have a drought contingency plan that combines long-term and short-term mitigation strategies. It guides the Navajo residents to be proactive before a drought even begins. Because of the large area and the limited infrastructure, it's difficult to be able to do real-time data uh, because, you know, cell phones don't even work in some areas. And we have individuals within the water monitoring and inventory group be able to drive to 85 sites throughout Arizona, New Mexico, and uh, Utah to be able to evaluate the month-to-month variation of precipitation. One one thing that frustrates me, and I'm going to guess that it frustrates you as well, is that when we're addressing the problem, when it happens, we're not necessarily being preventative about it. And I think sometimes, you know, people have a hard time identifying with a problem that doesn't affect them. because they're like, hey, you know, I don't feel climate change. I'm good. And I don't think it's real. There's no drought where I live. Yeah. I like to think about drought like a bank account. And so with each precipitation event, it's like putting pennies into your negative $100 or more account. And we don't have enough of those precipitation events to get us out of those severe and exceptional conditions. Now back to Dr. Guan. In terms of the current mega drought in the West, he has a few ideas. The first, government investment. 
to build some good infrastructure as well as design more sustainable water management and water use. Uh, gonna really help, you know, the local people to prepare. For me, I can develop more technology to help farmers to gain more about one drop of the irrigated water. You know, you you just try to make it make irrigation more efficient. You you better use the water, um, and then also better help farmers to anticipate the drought, such that local people have the response time to really take some actions. With the relentless news about how our planet is heating up and drying out, it's tempting to give in to despair. But when I listen to Guan's excitement about his work and his drive to come up with solutions, I feel the optimism. I get charged up. I, I would say it's a, it's a really really exciting time too that the technology reached to the time that enable this generation of scientists to start to convert the imagination to become the reality to achieve a big thing for the humanity. I, I really I really believe so. You know, I think uh, it's about the time. And I also be proud about being an immigrant in this country, and and so I'm 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 Chinese, and uh, uh, you know I uh, I stand up for you know Asian community, and so uh, stop Asian hates. <laughs> you know that's Asian very important. Hate, yes, that's very important. That's very serious, and I'm very proud about my uh, uh, origin. But at the same time, I think when we are talking about you know these big problems about the whole planet, a whole nature. There's no differentiation about where you come from.、Uh, we should fight together as human beings. Nova Now is a production of GBH and PRX. It's produced by Terence Bernardo, Ari Daniel, Jocelyn Gonzalez, Isabel Hibbard, Sandra Lopez Monsalve, and Rosalind Tordesillas. Julia Court and Chris Schmidt are the co-executive producers of Nova. Dante Graves is director of audience development. Suki Bennett is senior digital editor. Christina Monin is associate researcher. Robin Kasmer is science editor. Lorena Lyon is digital production assistant, and Devin Robbins is managing producer of podcast at GBH. Our theme music is by the DJ who makes it rain with funky beats, DJ Kid Koala. I'm Alok Patel. We'll be back in two weeks, which is plenty of time for you to learn how to use less water. You can start by taking shorter showers and just avoiding baths, or turning off the water while brushing your teeth, shaving, or doing dishes. Maybe you should check your faucets, pipes, or toilets for leaks, or do less laundry. Try installing a water meter. Water your lawn only when it needs it, or try planting drought-resistant trees and plants. We can all do better. GBH.